This morning we're going to begin a series through the letter written by John, the Apostle. And um, as he is writing, carried along by the Holy Spirit, this is what he says to the churches. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray again. God, we ask now that you would come and speak through this text to us. That we would learn from your Holy Spirit more about who Christ is and more about how knowing him for who he is should change our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Hans Christian Andersen once wrote a story of an emperor. And the emperor loved clothes. He adored clothes. In fact, his whole life was just centered around different kinds of clothing. And he spent an enormous amount of money every year on clothing and attire and robes. In fact, instead of the people saying what would be something very common to say about a king, that he is there sitting on his throne, judging... They would often say, no, the emperor is sitting in his wardrobe. And the story goes that two men arrived into the city and they made themselves out to be exceptional weavers. They were, they were the most incredible weavers that the world has ever produced, to hear them say. In fact, they, they were so incredible that they used cloth that only they knew of. And this cloth was, was beautiful in color and it had elaborate patterns upon it. And they would use this cloth to make clothing with. But even more than the fact that it was beautiful and more than the fact that it had elaborate patterns, the most incredible thing about the cloth is that it remained invisible to those who were unfit for the position to which they were called or... To those who were ignorant or simple. Well, in the story, the emperor thought to himself, I have to have some of this cloth. This must be a splendid clothing, he said. Had I such a suit, I might at once find out what men in my realm are unfit for their office. And also be able to distinguish the wise from the foolish. He says, this clothing must be woven for me immediately. Do it. So, the weaver set to work. And they worked night and day, night and day. And there they would sit in their rooms with their spinning wheels and they would spin nothing. They would spin and spin and spin. And finally the emperor, as he's beginning to feel just a little bit antsy, he he wants this new clothing. So he sends 
two people. The first one goes to the room where the weavers are working and he knocks, he enters, and they say to him, oh, do you, do you like it? Can, can you see the beautiful intricate patterns? Do you, do you like what we've done already? And the man is a little bit bewildered because there's nothing there. He doesn't see a thing. So he looks and he begins to think about his condition. If he goes back to the emperor and he tells the emperor, these guys are, are, are crazy. They're, they're not doing anything. If he goes back and says that, the emperor will automatically say, well, that's because you're unfit for your position. You're fired. You can go herd cows or something like that. So he says, oh, I love it. It looks beautiful. It's amazing. It's the most beautiful clothing I've ever seen. And he goes back to the emperor and he tells the emperor these things. So the emperor, once again, becomes antsy. He wants this clothing, and so he sends another person. The other person comes back. Same kind of story. And so finally, they call to the emperor and say, Emperor, your clothing is ready. So the emperor is so very excited. He walks into the room. As he walks into the room, he sees the two weavers standing there, and they're standing there like this. And he looks at him, and he begins to think, Wait a second. I don't see anything. And he wonders to himself, am I unfit to be the emperor of this kingdom? Am I as simple as, as the most common of man? As he begins to think about all of these things, everyone else is just simply glowing. Oh, emperor, look how wonderful and beautiful this is. And he begins to think in his own mind, I must not say that I cannot see it. And so he says, it's beautiful. I've never seen anything so beautiful in all of my life. And so the weavers tell him, okay, well come, emperor, if you'll take off all of your clothes, we will then reclothe you with these new clothes. And so he takes off all of his clothes. They put these new clothes on him. And as he begins to exit the room, uh, those who are attending to him reach down onto the floor and pretend to pick up the train of his robes. And as they walk out, they have nothing in their hands. And they're all thinking, I think this is crazy. I don't know what's happening, but this is crazy. So he gets out in front of all of the people of the town. They've gathered all of the people of the town. And many of them are fully aware of of what's going on here. They they know that if, if, if they don't say anything about the clothing, then they will automatically be thought of as simpletons or unfit for the positions that they've been given. And so as he begins to walk out, the people closest to him are saying things like, Oh, what beautiful clothing! Look at the colors. And as he gets out a little further into the crowd, one small child looks up at the emperor and he says, The emperor has no clothes on. You see, what you believe really matters, doesn't it? What you believe really does matter. In fact, it determines much about what your life will look like. For the emperor, all of the evidence pointed to the fact that these men were liars. All of the evidence pointed to the fact that these men were imposters. They knew nothing of weaving. And yet, because he believed them, he found himself exposed and humiliated. Friends, what you believe will determine how you live. So as we begin our study of the book of 1 John, I want you to see that what you believe about Jesus deeply affects the way that you live your life. Deeply affects the way that you live your life. 
And what we find here as we look at this book, this letter written by John, is that there has been a crisis of belief among the church that he is writing to. A crisis of belief. And this is the reason that he writes the letter. Every letter that we find in the New Testament was written just like any letter that we would write now. We don't write things without a reason or a purpose. In fact, every email that you send out, even if it's something very short or a text that you send to a friend, all of it has has purpose behind it. And maybe because you, you haven't talked to this person in a very long time, so you want to reconnect. Or maybe it's because you need to ask them a question about where to be at a certain time. Whatever it might be, there is a reason for the correspondence. And as we look at the New Testament, we ought not think that, that somehow the, the writers of the New Testament are simply sitting down and write a systematic theology. That's not what they're doing. They're writing because certain things have happened which has given them cause to write these certain things to those people. And so as we look at this letter by John, he is writing because of a particular crisis in the church. Most scholars believe that the Apostle was writing this letter in the last decade of the first century. And he's probably writing from the city of Ephesus to the church, a church in modern day Turkey. John wrote his gospel about ten years earlier. And in the gospel, he says that this is the purpose of his, of his, of his work. He says, I write to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have a life in His name. Because he knew that the church was going to undergo all kinds of persecution. There was going to be difficult times. They were going to need this encouragement to withstand the suffering. If they were to believe upon Jesus as the Messiah, they would actually endure. And now, some years later, another crisis has come. In chapter 2 of this letter, in verse 19, he talks about a church split. A large number of people have have gone out from the fellowship of the church and and John doesn't mince words about how he feels about them. He He doesn't gloss over what he thinks they're about and what they're doing. He says that they are liars. They're liars. They're deceivers, he says. Antichrist even. Children of the devil. Murderers. False prophets. See, the false teachers were affirming the deity of Christ. Now, we don't really cringe at that. But what they were denying is that Jesus came in the flesh. They were affirming that Jesus really was, or that Christ really was divine. But but the fact that that Jesus came in the flesh, this is something that they could not accept. They were were fully willing to accept that, that Jesus was, or that the Christ was this divine being. But to actually think that he had become a human being was unacceptable to them. They rejected what John said in his gospel in chapter 1 and verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. They rejected this. John says in his letter specifically in chapter 4, he says, They cannot acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. The false teachers, they make a distinction, it seems, between Jesus... And the Christ. And many, many believe that these teachers may have been some early kind of docetic cult. The, the docetists uh, were an early cult in Christian history who taught that, that the Christ was, was uh, the one who came. The divine Christ, the eternal Son of God, appeared to be in human form. In fact, the word itself that, that they get the word docetist comes from uh, the word in the Greek that just means to appear, to seem as such. 
And so what they would say is that the divine Christ, he appeared to be human, but he really wasn't human. It looked as though he was a human person, but he wasn't really a human person. He was more of a phantom, more of an apparition. They, they emphasize what John said in, in John chapter 1, where it says his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. But they denied the fact that he came in the flesh. And in that day also, there was a Greek worldview that said that the things that are of the material world, the physical things, these things are bad by nature. And the things that are are good are the things that are immaterial, the spiritual things. And so you take this worldview, this Greek worldview, and then you place it on top of Christianity and you end up having this distortion. So a refusal and a rejection of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But when John writes this letter, he writes for the purpose of destroying those lies. That's what he's trying to accomplish. And it'll be really important as we go throughout this letter to notice how John describes the Son of God. He doesn't just use the term Christ because that's the term that they're using exclusively. Instead, he uses also with it the name Jesus. Very, very often he combines the two so there is no ambiguity about what he means. Jesus is the Christ. In fact, this is what he says in chapter 5. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Oftentimes we look at that verse and we don't really understand what he's actually saying. We think, well, okay, well that seems to make sense. Because we associate those two terms together, Jesus and Christ. But what he's saying is, these false teachers are pulling those two terms apart. Jesus was not the Christ. Jesus was the human flesh. Christ was the divine Logos. And they were pulling them apart. And what he's saying is, you don't have the gospel if you don't have Jesus as the Christ. Those two things must go together. Those two natures come together in unity. When we are not careful to read and study our Bibles, it's very easy to be convinced of half-truths. And this is what we see here in what's happening at the church. John begins his letter by drawing a line in the sand. Look back at the first two verses. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The first thing that I want you to notice is the importance of a real Jesus. The importance of a physical Jesus, a real Jesus. John begins his letter by pointing out to the testimony of the apostles. The words of the apostles. What, they, what the apostles taught was, was not given to them by secondary means. They, they didn't receive it by hearsay as though somebody else had said it and spoken it. No, this was something that they fully were aware of from the beginning. They were there. They heard Jesus preach. They saw Jesus do these miraculous signs. They were witnesses to what Jesus had done. But notice what he says in the, in the first sentence. He says, that which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. Now it has some allusions, I think, to John chapter 1 in his gospel. And even Genesis 1 in the beginning of the Bible where it says, in the beginning God created or in the beginning the Word and so on. 
There is some allusion to that. But I think what John is actually speaking more clearly about is the beginning of the gospel. That which was from the beginning. We were there with Him in the beginning. At the beginning of the gospel of God. When Jesus arrived on the scene and began to teach and preach. He says, that which was from the beginning. One of the greatest problems or greatest dangers that we have today is our, our, our love for novelty. We love new things. We love a new fresh perspective. We, we love a, a different kind of lifestyle or a different kind of example or a new mysterious uh, thing to enjoy. Whatever it is. We have a lot of ADHD kind of things going on. We just love new stuff. Things that we've never seen before. Things that just blow us away. We, we love that kind of thing. And sometimes that enters into the way that we think spiritually. In the early 1990s, there was a trend among uh, postmodern Christians. Many of them had begun to reject uh, their parents' faith because they saw the emptiness of that faith. They saw uh, the, the facade that it seemed to be. That the Christianity of their parents was, was really little more than committee meetings and pews and wearing your best clothes to look your best and socializing. And so they looked at that kind of Christianity that wasn't really lived and modeled at home but was only done out in public and they rejected it. And some of them left the faith altogether. Others Wanted to be Christians, but they didn't want this surface kind of Christianity anymore. So they began to turn toward the ancients. They disregarded thousands of years of church history and and went back to the originals. Back to the early church to try and find out what the early church fathers were thinking. And the theology that they had. There's a problem when you disregard all of those years of church history. Other people nowadays, we cling to the next book that comes out that's down at Lifeway, on the, on the shelf, or maybe a, another bookstore. We look at the books and, and we're trying to find something that has this easy kind of fix for us. A book that says something like this on the cover, how to have a, a spiritual success story, or the next five steps to fixing your spiritual problems, or whatever it might be. We see them all over the place because we're all looking for something that is easily fixing our problem. This mystery that has been hidden for ages by everyone else in church history. We want it for ourselves and we look for it. This is exactly what false teachers are trying to sell. This kind of garbage. And they're saying, we have a new understanding. We have a new revelation. We have knowledge about these things. And it's going to change your life. But John says, that which is from the beginning. That which is from the beginning. He's saying, it's the same old story, friends. It's the same old story. Nothing has changed. The story is still about God who became a man and died on a cross for the sins of the world. The story is still the same. It's the same story. He was raised from the dead and He will return to judge the living and the dead. John saying, it's the same old story. It hasn't changed from the beginning. As Christians, we don't graduate from the gospel. My wife, who unfortunately is not here today because we have a sick child, so I'll brag on her a little bit. She is one of the best cooks I've ever eaten from. She's amazing. She can cook anything. But one of the things that she cooks the best is pies. And some of you have had her pies. 
But she cooks this one pie, and for years, this is a little anecdote that it's a rabbit trail, okay? I love pie. I've always loved chocolate pie, but because I'm married to her and she's making different kinds of pie, I'm kind of broadening my horizons. And, uh, and my favorite pie at this point, now it may change, you know, maybe next week or something, but my favorite pie at this point is this strawberry sour cream pie that she makes. And I can eat it all day long. It's incredible. But I imagine that if I ate it every single day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, in probably about two weeks, I'd probably get tired of it. Now, did the deliciousness of the pie change? No. I did. I became accustomed to it. My taste buds began to kind of feel like they wanted something different. And friends, this is the same way that we respond to the gospel. The gospel doesn't change. When the gospel begins to feel as though it's dull or or not mysterious or uninviting or just something we've heard over and over again, it's not the gospel that's changed. It's you. You're the one who's become accustomed to it. You're the one who is relying upon your own nature to determine what is good. The gospel hasn't changed. The gospel is still the same and it's still good. Catherine Hankey, in a poem, wrote these words, and later it became a hymn. And it's so beautiful the way she says it. She says, tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love. Tell me the story simply as to a child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Tell me the story slowly. That I may take it in. That wonderful redemption. God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often. For I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away at noon. Tell me the story softly. With earnest tones and grave. Remember I'm the sinner whom Jesus came to save. Tell me the story always. If you would really be. If any in trouble a comforter to me. Tell me the same old story. When you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. Yes, and when that world's glory is dawning on my soul, tell me the old, old story. Christ Jesus makes me whole. John is saying, friends, it's the same old story. And it makes the same old claim. It's an indisputable claim. Look again at verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. What is he saying to this church? He's saying Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the God-man. And he, he focuses on three indisputable claims. John says, I heard Him speak. I heard Him with my own ears, people. I heard His voice. I, I heard Him as he, he called to me from the shore and said, follow me. I heard Him when He preached to thousands upon thousands on the plains. I, I heard His voice call see when he said be quiet be still I heard him when he when he raised the dead by calling Lazarus out of the tomb I I heard him when he put his mom underneath my own care 
I heard his vocal cords shout out, It is finished. Say, I heard this man. Then he also says, I saw him. I saw him. I saw him touch Bartimaeus' eyes and he was healed. I saw him reach out and, and touch that leper that no one else wanted to touch. I saw him reach out and touch him. I saw him walk across the sea. I saw him as he lay there being nailed on a cross. And as they hoisted him up, I saw them as they, as they stuck a spear into his side and blood and water flowed. John's saying, I saw these things happen. I saw the body of Jesus. And he also says, I touched him. I remember the feeling of his embrace. I remember the tenderness of those calloused hands of a carpenter. I remember leaning against his chest and asking him at that last meal who it is that was going to betray him. John is saying, the story that you've been given by the apostles is true. We heard him. We saw him. We touched him. Jesus really is the Christ. Jesus is fully man and fully God. In John's Gospel, he says that He's the Word of God. And then later on in his Gospel, he says that He's the way and the truth and the life. The story that you've been given is the message of life. And that Word has been fully revealed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God has demonstrated who He is to all of us by sending Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now, why does that matter for us? Why does that make a difference for you? Why does it matter what you believe about the incarnation? How's that going to affect your life? How's that going to, to change your life? Because what you believe about Jesus determines the obedience that you give towards His mission. If Jesus was merely a man, He would not be able to bear the weight of our sin. He would have the same nature as us. He would be of the same uh, bent to sin if Jesus was merely a man. But if Jesus was only God, He would not be able to stand and represent humankind. He would not be able to stand in your place and take your cross for you. Because He would not be like you. You see, a gospel that says that Jesus is not fully God and not fully man, that gospel cannot save you. That gospel cannot unite us as though we're brothers and sisters. That gospel doesn't bring us together here this morning and cause us to worship God. And that gospel doesn't give any kind of joy. Look at verse 3. He says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's familiar to what John said in the opening chapter of his gospel. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is that of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus put on flesh, He became the exact imprint of God's nature for us. But look at verse 3 again. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What's He saying? What's He saying? If we were to put that in our own words, maybe He would say, we must proclaim the gospel to one another so that we can have true fellowship with one another and with God. Because it's only then that we will experience joy. So the first thing we ought to do is proclaim the gospel to one another. That's what John is is doing. That's what he has done. He says, I proclaim this to you. I've told you about this. I proclaim this to you. But proclaiming the gospel is not just something that preachers ought to do. It's not something that's strictly in my job set. No, it's all of us. We ought to all be proclaiming the gospel to one another. It's the gospel that we remind one another with. We speak to it. We speak it to each other. It's the truth of God. It's the thing that encourages us. In fact, the other day as I was putting Cademan to bed, and Cademan probably remembers this, but um, as I was putting them down to sleep at night, I, I asked him what his favorite story was. And he looked at me and he said, it's the story about Jesus dying on the cross. And so I asked another question. I said, well, why is that question, or why is that story your favorite why is it Jesus dying on the cross? And he said to me, he looked at me, he said, Well, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could love God. And I needed that. My six-year-old preached the gospel to me. And I needed it. We ought not think that we don't need other people to speak and remind the gospel to us. Because all of us, every single day, we need to hear the gospel again. We need to be reminded of that old story that Christ came, that He died on a cross for sinners, and it was our sin that put Him on the cross. And it's because of His death we can be free. We can be free to love God. Friends, we have to remind each other of the gospel. Hanky's words are true. Tell me the story often. Why? For I forget so soon. We must tell the story to each other because it's only through the gospel that we find genuine fellowship with one another and with God. So we're to love one another in the same way that God loves us. John says that he's writing this letter so that the church there will have fellowship with him. And so that they will have fellowship with God, the Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship is not just getting together and talking about sports. We're talking about the weather. Fellowship doesn't just automatically happen when we go downstairs in the fellowship hall and eat together. Fellowship happens when you remind one another about the gospel. When you speak to one another about the gospel's effect in your life. Fellowship happens when you talk about God. When you talk about what God is doing in your life. What God is teaching you. With your brothers and sisters, you talk about these things. Fellowship is what happens when you confess your shortcomings. And encourage one another to be faithful. Fellowship is what happens when you you worship God like this together. When we pray together. When we read the scriptures together. When we hear the preaching of God's word together. When we worship in song and music together. Fellowship is what happens when we mutually love one another. Because what Christ has done for us. See the fruit of a life changed by God is love. You don't have fellowship without love. It's 
why John says in chapter 3 of this letter, he says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. It's only through this love for one another and a love for God that we can experience the full measure of joy that only the gospel can bring. Jesus said in John chapter 15, He said, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. We must proclaim the gospel to one another so that we can have true fellowship. Because it's only when we experience true fellowship that we will experience joy. Friends, does what you believe about Jesus shape the way that you live? Does the truth of the gospel, does it it mold the way that you respond to tragedy? To criticism, to stress, to temptation. Do you find joy when you're with other believers because of the connection that you have with Jesus Christ? Or do you find yourself kind of like the emperor? You say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm trying to do my best for God. I see the importance of church. And all the while in your heart, you don't see anything. Nothing there. And one day you will be humiliated. When that happens, it'll be too late. Friends, if you will trust in Jesus to save you from your sins and confess that He is the Lord, God will give you a new set of clothes. It won't be those old ragged clothes that you used to wear, the ones that are tattered and worn, but it'll be new robes. Robes of righteousness that belong to Christ. Let's pray together.